Hi, I'm Sherry Davis, Canada's Dogmaster and the trainer of Rex on the hit TV series Hudson and Rex. This is How to Dog. Each episode, someone like you calls in with a canine question. This week, we're looking at disease in dogs and what owners need to be mindful of. Hey there, uh, my name is Eric, and I've got a question for you. So I spend most, if not all, of my time with my dogs, and we're in constant contact. They sleep in my bed. I kiss their faces. Uh, One in particular loves to put his tongue directly into my mouth. So my question is, can I get my dog sick, or can my dog get me sick? Uh, Is that something I need to worry about? Uh, Hoping you could clear this up for me. Thank you in advance. for your call, Eric. Although I'm not sure it's a great idea to let your dog put its tongue in your mouth, but let's see what we can find out. Just like us, dogs are susceptible to disease, parasites, and other pathogens. And it's our responsibility as owners to keep them safe the best we can, especially from ticks, heartworm, and even COVID-19. Today, we're going to examine the impacts of disease on dogs. We're also going to hear about how dogs can actually be trained to sense disease in humans, just with their noses. That's what we're here to learn about today. This is How To Dog. Hi, everyone. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be professional advice. Always consult with an expert when taking care of your own doggo. Dog bless you. Over to you, Sherry. One of the ways dogs commonly get sick is from something that they pick up when they're out walking in the woods. For example, in many regions, owners should be aware to watch out for ticks, as some of these ticks carry Lyme disease. But there are a few other risks as well, which is where my first guest comes in. Dr. Sarah Hamer is a veterinarian and an epidemiologist. She specializes in studying pathogens that can be shared between dogs and people. She also works on ways to prevent disease transmission between human and dog, as well as dog to human. I'm just wondering if you could um, let our listeners know where you are and who you are. I work in the College of Veterinary Medicine and Biomedical Sciences, which is our big vet school here at Texas A&M. And I run a research lab. And our focus um, in the research lab is really studying diseases that emerge at the human-animal interface. So we do a lot of work with infectious, you know, parasites, bacteria, viruses that can impact humans and non-human animals, whether they're wildlife or domestic animals. My own background is in um, ecology and wildlife. And then, you know, I went through vet school and you get a lot of dog experience. So now it's kind of, you know, we look at different disease systems and we're trying to identify what are the key animal reservoirs, you know, the key animal species that are responsible for maybe maintaining these infections on the landscape. So one system that we've been working on a lot is called Chagas disease. And this is caused by a parasite that impacts the heart. And it is zoonotic. So this is an example of a disease that infects animals and infects humans. And it's devastates a neglected tropical disease. It's distributed across the Americas. So from the southern United States, down into Mexico, Central America, South America, there's a huge human health burden of disease. It causes cardiac disease. The parasite gets in the heart 
and can cause a really debilitating heart disease and death in many cases. Well, it turns out dogs are also very susceptible and it can cause the same type of heart disease in dogs. So we've been looking at dogs, not under, not only to understand, you know, dog health and veterinary health issues, but also to learn a little bit more about human health risk because dogs can almost be a sentinel or an indicator about the local level of risk to humans. And that, that disease has been really fun to work on because it's transmitted by a vector called a kissing bug. They're these one inch long blood sucking insects that spread the parasite from animal to animal or from, you know, human to animal. So we do a lot of work with insect vectors as well. But it's funny you brought up a point there about it's coming from an insect, because when you think of heartworm, let's say, heartworm disease is transmitted by your mosquitoes. Yep. So in turn, does that mean that humans can get a form of a heartworm? Yeah, there have been, um, I believe, you know, rare documented cases of human infection by, you know, Dirofilaria imidis, which is the canine, you know, canine heartworms. And that that is just because these vectors, the mosquito, maybe they prefer to feed on dogs or on other, you know, mammals, but occasionally can take a blood meal from a human. You know, occasionally they can bridge this, this worm um, to, to humans, to a non-target host. And that's true of a lot of these different diseases that we work on. They might have uh, preferred or more common hosts, but occasionally they can spill over to other hosts. And that's often where we see disease and um, you know unexpected outcomes is when these pathogens that might have been silently circulating with their normal wildlife reservoirs, not causing much damage, when they get bridged over to a species that they don't normally occur in is when we really learn about it. Hi, I'm Sherry Davis, Canada's Dog Master. Later in the podcast, I'm going to be joined by two researchers in Australia who study the ability of dogs to sniff out disease in humans, even COVID-19. Right now, I'm speaking to Dr. Sarah Hamer about some of the diseases that dogs can pick up and how those illnesses can transfer to other animals, including us. It's fascinating science, like it really is. And and I don't think a lot of people understand it. I don't think a lot of people are aware of it. But on this note, I am going to ask you about another one that is, in my opinion, it's a real problem disease. It's like the silent disease. And that's the tick-borne Lyme disease. Now, have you done any studies on the Lyme disease? Actually, um, in earning my uh, my. PhD dissertation up at Michigan State University. I worked on Lyme disease and we did a lot of work with dogs as well, merging in terms of human cases. And it can infect, uh, you know, the, the bacteria that causes Lyme disease in humans, as we know, is spread by uh, by ticks, in particular, the black-legged tick or deer tick. I'm sure you're very familiar with that tick species. <laughs> but the tick, um, yes, it can feed on humans, but it also, you know, it feeds on wildlife and it feeds on little mice like the white-footed mouse, which happens to be a really good reservoir for the Lyme disease bacteria. So the ticks will feed once on a mouse and get infected. And then those ticks will feed their net. They feed three times in their life. That's it for these ticks. They take three blood meals. So they need at least one opportunity to pick up the Lyme bacteria. And then in either of their next two blood meal, blood feeding events, that's when they can deliver the infection to a human or a dog or a bird or whatever else they're feeding on. Just, yeah, the life history of these ticks is that they hatch um, from little eggs and they become a larva. 
the larval tick will take a single blood meal. It might take, uh, you know, five to seven days where it's attached to a host and it's actively blood feeding. Once it gets enough blood, it drops off, it molts, and it becomes the second stage, which is a nymph. The nymphal tick will then take a blood meal. It will stay attached again for up to a week, getting all the blood and nutrition that it needs, drops off, molts, and becomes an adult. Here we have either adult male or adult female. They do the same thing. They mate. They die. So that's it. Three blood meals, three opportunities for either picking up the Lyme pathogen or delivering the Lyme pathogen. Wow. I can't believe that they, that's it. It's different than mosquitoes that might be, you know, taking multiple, you know, many blood meals during their life and different than these kissing bugs that I just mentioned that will again take dozens of blood meals in their life. They're called three host ticks because they feed on exactly three different hosts. You know, when we think of, um, I'm going to go to the uh, flea and tick, we have medication for it. And there's all these medicines that we give to our animals. But the coronavirus, um, they get a vaccine already for the, in their regular vaccines. And I'm wondering if there's going to be maybe a COVID-19 vaccine for dogs and cats because, you know, now we've got a COVID-19 vaccine for humans. So is that something that we're looking into? The first thing is there's a lot of different coronaviruses that are similar to the virus that's causing COVID-19, but, you know, genetically distinct. And there's several that regularly circulate in our dogs and in our cats every year. And some of them they receive a coronavirus vaccine for. Now, to our knowledge, that animal coronavirus vaccine that your dog might get at the vet clinic as part of their regular vaccination series um, will not be protective for SARS-CoV-2, which is the pandemic virus. Whether or not there will be an animal SARS-CoV-2 vaccine in the future, I think a lot of that will depend on studies like ours at Texas A&M and others that really are intended to measure how common animal infections are, right? If it's not happening very much, then maybe there's no need to put resources into a vaccine. If, for example, all these households we're looking at where the pets are at risk because there's a human who's infectious that's sneezing in the household and snuggling with the dog, if we're failing to show that dogs are getting infected, then there might not be a reason to think about a vaccine. However, we are getting some evidence that under some circumstances, dogs are getting infected, but the story's not complete yet. What does it mean? If it really doesn't impact dog health, then no big deal. If the dog could never transmit it to another animal or to a human, then maybe it's less of a big deal. So I think we really need to learn a lot more about these natural infections to judge whether or not a, an animal vaccine should be high on our priority list. But I don't believe it's been explored you know, um, to any great detail. We haven't heard about it in the news just because the priority has had to have been a human vaccine. Right. We cannot thank you enough for joining us today. I would love to be able to touch back with you in a month or two and and just see maybe a couple months and see where the studies are. Yeah, that would be great. Thank you. That's amazing. Thank you very much for all your time today. Well, you too. Thanks for your interest. Dr. Sarah Hamer is a veterinarian and an epidemiologist in Texas. I know all about dogs and human transmission diseases. Let me tell you how. It's actually happened to myself. Dogs get something called roundworm, and a lot of people don't even realize that roundworm is transmittable from humans to dogs. It comes up as a little round ring on your skin, the same as in dogs. Well, guess what, guys? 
You can get it. They can get it. We can transfer it between our species. So this is something we really want to watch. My next guests have super interesting jobs. Doctors Annelise Chabert and Susan Hazel are both veterinarians and researchers at the University of Adelaide. They've been working on training dogs to sniff out diseases in humans. Thank you so much, ladies, for being with us today. I'm really excited about this. You know, if you think back even 30 years ago, dogs were not part of our family and communities like they are now. We didn't have this extent of service dogs. Maybe you can help me here. I don't think the dogs have gotten any smarter over the past 30 years, but maybe our science has gotten more involved with studying the dog and we've become more aware of what they're capable of. Like, it just seems like now we've got detection dogs and we've got medical dogs. They're amazing. The, these dogs can do so much that we didn't know they could do 30 years ago. Yes, I would agree. So my area is animal behavior and welfare that I teach and research in. And certainly dog science, canine science has, has gone gangbusters the last 10 or so years. And we know so much more about dog cognition, um, even down to MRI level to see what happens in, in dogs' brains. I think as well, and, and Annalise and I, in the work that we're doing, we're very much taking a scientific approach. So the detector dog programs in themselves are very scientifically based. I don't know that people always realise that. And we're working on using double-blind methods and really using science to show what the dogs can do. I think it's also important in understanding what dogs are capable of that we're not talking about replacing the other methods. We're talking about using this as an adjunct. And there are some areas where, where dogs will be far more valuable than the other methods that we have. They're very quick. They can rapidly screen a lot of people and potentially they can pick up those very early stages of infection. And where we're talking about one person being a super spreader, if you can stop that person, if you can pick them up in the early stages of the infection, then I think that's an invaluable tool. Yes, absolutely. Because, you know, by the sounds of things, uh, this isn't going away. This is our new normal for uh, for a few years from what it sounds like. Yes, you're correct. I know that a lot of people are hoping with the vaccines. And I think the vaccine is going to be obviously an incredible tool. But at this stage, uh, it's it seems that the vaccine will prevent you from becoming very sick, from having a lot of symptoms, but might not prevent you from actually being infected and actually be able to carry the disease and pass it to others. So um, I think we'll need to have fast and reliable screening tools, uh, and that's not going to change. You know, I've been following the dogs in Europe and their progress in training sniffer dogs. And, you know, it's really funny that we are exploring this route to go with the dogs. A lot of people are concerned about their dogs catching COVID. And then there was actually um, some articles and some questions about, well, if the dogs are sniffing COVID, then can't they catch the COVID? So can one of you enlighten us on this? So, yes, we're actually using sweat sample, and the virus is not present in the sweat sample. So our dogs are not uh, detecting the virus itself. They are detecting the smell that we've got when we are infected by the virus. We call that volatile organic compound that we are producing when we are infected. 
that they're actually not detecting the virus. Oh, so it's the it's from your sweat glands, your actual sweat. Exactly. So when you are sick, you produce a specific smell, and they are detecting that. Wow. Even if we actually add virus, we never put the dog directly in contact with the samples, and we screen our dogs very regularly by PCR to make sure that they are not being infected. But so far, so good. And we also are screening the sweat sample itself to check if there is any virus on them by PCR, and there are no virus. So they are not sniffing the virus itself. Okay, so there is a controversy. Can dogs even catch COVID-19 or can they carry COVID-19? Because dogs get a coronavirus vaccine, but like like everything else, like a flu shot, there's so many different strains of the flu, the one vaccine isn't going to cover all of them. Is that the same case with our canines? So canines replicate very poorly uh, SARS-CoV-2. This has been shown experimentally, where they actually um, try to inject COVID-19 to dogs and they actually and to different species, and they realize that dogs do replicate very poorly. So for a dog to be infected, that means that he will have been um, exposed to an extremely high viral load and that he is most likely immunosuppressed uh, because they don't replicate SARS-CoV-2. Oh, well, this is this is great information. <laughs> okay, so is it geared towards certain breeds or any breed or mixed breed? Like, how are you choosing your dogs? So any dog would be able to smell what our detector dogs are smelling. They're, they've got such a, a powerful sense of smell, far more powerful than ours. It's more around, so we've been working with Australian Border Force in Australia, and they use a lot of Labradors. So most of our dogs currently are Labradors. So it's around having dogs that are, are trainable, are highly motivated. They're trained using positive methods, using play and food. And of course, we all know Labradors are highly motivated by both and will continue to work for a, a long time with both. You know, it's like people, there are some people who are visually smart and some people who are book smart. And is it the same with the dogs? Like you have to basically, uh, it's trial and error. These dogs are, are more capable or show a better capability of doing it than another dog, even though it's the same breed. Yes, so it's true that not dogs are the same. And some of them are actually uh, understanding the exercise and picking up the smell very quickly, while some others take a bit more time. But that's okay, we can actually tailor our training to adapt to each dog. Some of the dogs were actually not able to uh, work on this exercise and we decided to uh, assign them to another task. Okay, so when you're training these dogs, you're you're giving them sweat samples and they're giving you an indication. And I take it an indication is a sit or a bark or like, how are they indicating to you that that's the right sample? So the dogs were imprinted initially on multiple positive samples. Uh, they got to know that scent. And then as they moved through the training, they would be given a positive sample and a negative sample. And they were trained to, you're right, to give a passive alert. So when they're in front of the hides, the cones that we use that have the scent inside, they will sit in front of the one that is positive. Did you guys know that depending on the breed of dog and what they're smelling, they can smell up to 100,000 times better than us? They also have 300 million olfactor receptacles, where me, I only have 
maybe six million. And the part of their brain that analyzes and processes scents, it's proportionally 40 times greater than the human brain. It's unbelievable. Right now, I'm talking to doctors Susan Hazel and Annelise Chabert, who are veterinarians and researchers studying how well dogs can sniff out diseases in humans. This is How to Dog. What was the training length, the length of time that it takes to train one of these dogs? And are these dogs already pre-trained to sniff a different subject? So our dogs took six weeks to train, from four to six weeks to train. Um, eight of our dogs were rookie dogs, meaning that they've not been pre-trained to detect any odor. Uh, but they were selected, so they're not pre-trained, but they were carefully selected. And seven of them were actually trained to detect other odors uh, previously. I just would like to add something, which is um, what Susan touched on, is that the dogs are actually able to detect people, even though they are only in the incubation phase, which the PCR cannot do. And that's the reason why sometimes we've got someone that is negative by PCR, giving us a sweat sample, we assume that this person is negative because the PCR was negative. When we give it to the dog, when we give this sample to the dog, the dog will say, no, it's a positive. And if we ask the person to retest, then the PCR can turn up positive. It's because at the time when they did the first PCR, the person was not shedding yet, but was already having the virus in their body, so the dog could detect that. Okay, so I guess what I'm trying to get at is what's going to stop the dogs from detecting COVID-19 um, instead of detecting a, a different flu? Is it that specific of a scent that we're shedding? Yes. So the smell that we are producing, that we are having, um, then the scent we are having when we actually are sick with SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19, is specific because... When we do this discrimination between positive sample and negative sample, we give negative sample from people who are not affected by anything, but also negative sample from people who've got the flu, who have got a common cold, which is also a beta coronavirus, but it's not the SARS-CoV-2, and the dog are not um, detecting, those, detecting those. So they're actually able to be um, quite accurate on the fact that they are detecting the people who are infected with SARS-CoV-2 and not the others. We want to scientifically prove that this can be done. And, you know, so having this study is fantastic. And I, I honestly think there's, uh, we, Canada is missing out on this. And, um, you know, I will do my due diligence in getting in touch with some people. Thank you, ladies. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Susan Hazel and Dr. Annelise Chabert are veterinarians and researchers at the University of Adelaide. I've learned a lot today about dogs, disease, and I hope there are some things that you've learned as well. Remember, it is always up to us to make sure that we don't put our dogs in a situation where they can get sick. So be careful out there when you're walking with your dogs. In the meantime, don't forget to give us a good review and please call us at 1-833-HOW-TO-DOG with your burning canine questions, just like this one, which we're going to tackle on our next episode. My-
my name is Jess, um, and I'm from Toronto. The reason I'm calling is because uh, my partner and I have been thinking of getting a dog, and we're pretty taken with uh, Frenchies, the French Bulldogs. However, in my research, I've come upon a lot of information that uh, says that they have pretty bad health problems. Uh, I wanted to ask if this conundrum is founded and if they should even really exist as dogs, um, if this is the way that they've come to exist. Thanks so much and excited for the show. Bye. How to Dog is hosted by Sherry Davis. Produced by Davin Langell and Carrie Hayden. Editing and mixing by Adam Killick. How to Dog is a Shaftesbury podcast and part of the Frequency Podcast Network. You can find more great shows at FrequencyPodcastNetwork.com. Copyright 2021 Shaftesbury.